starting at chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to jump right into that, and we'll um, go from there. It says this, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendant proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And so what we're seeing here, uh, if you kind of recall last week, that Last week, we were able to uh, basically identify that Vashti was a picture of the, um, the, the fallen church or those that have rejected God, and that King Ahasuerus was a picture of God, the king. And so we're continuing along that line here to see that Esther is going to be the bride, the church of Christ, the one that um, it, you might even say to some extent, even though that she's a Jew, the Gentiles, when the Jews first had rejected him, he went out and he opened up the gospel to the world, to the Gentiles. And so that it's a picture of that happening. And so what ends up happening is when Vashti first refuses it says, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins. Well, this is exactly what scripture says that we are to be presented to Christ as, as pure virgins, holy and pleasing to God, ultimately, as Romans says, as our spiritual act of worship. But Corinthians uses that very phrase that we are to be presented to Christ as virgins. Revelation does the same exact thing as well. So it's just kind of a, uh, the same picture that when the, the church, or I should say the Jews initially, had rejected Christ, the doors were opened up wider to uh, open it up for the Gentiles. And this is what's going on here, kind of a prophetic picture of that very thing. He goes on in verse 3, Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So now what we see happening is that there's this attendant, Haggai, uh, one of these seven that uh, are closest to the king. We see that he is um, basically saying, hey, this would be a good thing to do to go out and find these young women. Let somebody who pleases the king. And that's key, someone who pleases the king. <clears throat> well, what pleases the king? Uh, we're gonna talk about that in a moment. And before we do, let me just kind of remind you, we talked about this last week as well, but this is gonna tie into that. Matthew 22, talking about the parable of the wedding banquet again. The same thing is happening here in Esther. We see that Vashti had rejected the king's order, refused to come when she was summoned. Well, this is what happens in this parable of the wedding banquet, that uh, they paid no attention and they go off, one to his field, another to his business. And then the king is angry, just like we see with Ahasuerus. And then we see 
that they go out and say, find somebody else, find some young virgins. And this is what happens in this wedding parable that go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. This is exactly what's happening here in, in Esther, the same exact picture. And like I said, we talked about that last week, so I won't go over it too much here. But when we see the one who pleases the king, this is exactly what God says that he is looking for. He is looking for people who would please him. And as I asked, what pleases the king? Well, who gets to define that? Well, the king does. In essence, the Bible. Okay, And what the Bible says is that it is obedience that is going to uh, please the king. Let's look at a few examples of that. In Deuteronomy 5.29, it says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And so we see that Scripture is very clear that what pleases God is for us to follow him. Now, again, I'm not getting into works righteousness here or that saying that it's our works that, you know, that uh, saves us. Not at all. But now because we are saved, there is an aspect of a desire that we should have to please the king, that we should seek to please him. And what God says is that I wish that their hearts would be inclined to fear me, that they would keep my commands. Ecclesiastes also says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. In other words, of all the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all summed up in this one thing. This is how it kind of closes out. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And so those are Old Testament things, but really the old and the new, I, I, there's really not much of a difference. The old is the New Testament that uh, basically is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So in John 14, 15, we see that same type of thing talked about. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. And so this is how we can have a relationship with our king, to keep his commands, to follow him. He's given these commands not so that we would, uh, you know, try and earn ourselves uh, a way, a ticket to heaven. That's not it at all. We, we keep his commands because we love him. Just as a boy, I wanted to follow, you know, what my, my father said. I knew it pleased him, and it brought me joy to obey those commands. Now, I'm not saying I didn't disobey those commands at times, but nonetheless, my father was pleased with me when I did keep those commands. But uh, when I didn't, it didn't uh, mean that he didn't accept me or love me as a son either. But anyway, so we see that the Bible is the one that gets to define what pleases the king, what pleases God. And this is what the king is looking for. This is what they want, someone who will please the king. Isaiah chapter 56, it says this in verse 1, starting there in verse 1. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice, do what is right for my salvation. Now, by the way, that word really is Yeshua. Uh, sometimes you'll hear me say, rather than Jesus, I'll say Yeshua, because that was really what his name is in Hebrew. And I like to use it because of what it means. Yah is God. Shua is salvation. And so it's Yeshua means the Lord saves or the Lord's salvation. And so when we see this in the Old Testament, 
to do what is right for my salvation. It's like saying for Jesus, for Yeshua is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. The person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner, that would be Gentiles, who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Now, this is huge because uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this verse. Um, Paul, when he's speaking in Romans, pulls from this passage to show that Yeshua is going to basically reveal God's righteousness when he says, and now a a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And he's speaking of Yeshua. That's what Isaiah is saying here. There's a righteousness apart from the law. When he says, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation, my Yeshua is close at hand. But anyway, um, one of the, the, the Ten Commandments here that is brought forth, of all of the commandments that he talks about here in Isaiah, it's the one who holds fast and keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. That's interesting that the Sabbath is pulled. I find it interesting personally that today the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments that is probably the most um, neglected of all the Ten Commandments, that people just don't honor that today at all. And it's one of those things that the Scripture seems to be uh, lifting up as such an important aspect. So uh, in Esther, Going back there, we see that obedience is what's going to bring her into the, uh, the king's throne room. It's going to what brings her into the temple. This is exactly what we see Isaiah saying. These people who please God, who obey him, these foreigners even, and Esther was a foreigner as far as the king was concerned, that they were the one, he says, keep my Sabbaths who choose what pleases me. They are the ones that get to go into the temple of God. And that's what's happening here in Esther, that Esther is the one that is a picture of righteousness. Remember, her, her real name was Hadassah. And she's given this name Esther, but Esther means star, a picture of righteousness in Scripture. And so when she is being obedient, when she's brought into the temple of God, um, she is made righteous, you might say. So Hebrews 5, 9, just along the same thought process, says, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And again, this is talking about Jesus, that all who obey him, he has made salvation perfect through Christ and Christ only. So again, I just want to reiterate that we're not talking about salvation by, you know, we can please God so that we're saved, but rather because we're saved, we want to please God. 
Anyway, going on here in verse 5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Now, this is the only time we're going to see her called Hadassah now. She will be called Esther after this. Hadassah um, is her Jewish name, whereas Esther is actually a Persian name. Anyway, Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. A few things here. Number one, it says at the beginning in verse five that Mordecai is a Jew. Why does it take the time to mention that, she's, that he's a Jew? We, we, we kind of know that. It seems obvious. So this is kind of a flag that I think the scriptures are trying to make us aware of something, point us to something. I'm not going to give you the answer yet, but I just want to point it out that he's called a Jew. And that's going to be important later. So just kind of make note of that. But um, like I said, this is the last time you're going to see Esther called Hadassah. From here on out, she's going to have an identity change. Just like when God calls us into the kingdom, we also get an identity and a name change. We see that happening here as well. So verse 8, when the king's order and the edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So of all the women that are brought forth here from the kingdom, Esther attains favor with the, the king's special custodian. And Esther is moved or separated from these other women. And I believe that this is a picture as well of God separating Israel, separating his people from the world. When God calls Abraham, even from the very beginning, we see that he chose for him a special nation, a treasured nation, a treasured possession, the scripture calls it. And so uh, she's been set apart as a picture of God setting the church apart as well for a special purpose, to be taken care of, to be protected. And uh, God has clearly done that for Christians throughout all of history. Um, John Adams, the second president, I'm not going to give you that slide, but he talked about how unique Israel was. It, there was uh, no nation under earth throughout all of history that has been as special as uh, the, the nation of Israel. And so clearly, God has set us apart. I also find it interesting that there are seven um, attendants that are, are, are applied to Esther as well. I believe last time we talked about seven attendants before the king, and we made reference to that in Revelation and the seven stars, the seven churches, but yet we have to understand that these are also for the protection, uh, you might say, all of heaven, 
God has given to us to protect us, uh, his treasured possession ultimately. Deuteronomy 14.2, I'm going to give you some scripture talking about this treasured possession, that how God views his uh, chosen one. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Leviticus 20, verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And so I'm seeing this as a clear picture that Esther is being removed and set apart just as we have, just as Israel was. Goes on here in verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so what's going to happen here is we're going to see that um, there's going to be some beauty treatments and everything given. We're going to get to that in this next verse. But she's now set aside for that. But meanwhile, Mordecai does not get an opportunity to see her. He's, he's separated, but yet his eye is always on her daily. Okay, Every day he walks back and forth. Every day he's concerned about what Esther is doing. Every day his eyes are on basically his loved one. His, and that's what we see with God. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. This is what's going on right now. God's eyes never leave us. They are always concerned for our well-being. And that is what we see here with Esther. Mordecai is very concerned about that. Now, I don't want to you know, give you too much of a spoiler, but I think for this it's applicable. You're going to see that Mordecai is going to be a picture of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, we've got God the Father, Ahasuerus, the king. Mordecai is going to be a picture of Jesus, and that will become much more clear as we continue here. But it also says that she was not to reveal her nationality. It's also interesting that even today, Within the Jewish, uh, the Israel, there are many what we would call hidden Jews that are called the lost tribes of Israel. If you recall, even Jesus, when he came, he said, I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. These were the people like the Samaritans, the Gentiles. Okay, uh, This is even prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 18. When we see Ephraim, Ephraim is receiving a blessing and he says you will become a multitude of nations literally in hebrew it says you will become a multitude of goyim or a multitude of gentiles and so when jesus comes what he's saying is i have come for these lost sheep i have come for those who have separated from the flock you might say and so there is a, a hiddenness, a secrecy for Esther here. She's there, but she has not made herself known. Just like when, when God has, you know, when Jesus came, there were all of these people that were hidden in, in essence, that they had not yet come into the kingdom. 
So that, that's a great picture of that happening. Um, Mordecai, as I said, picture of Jesus having a close eye on a daily basis. So 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, Cast, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And again, this is just another verse just saying God cares for us. He's always has his eyes on us. And we might think that, you know, he's far off and he's not paying attention, especially when we're going through trials and tribulations. But that's not the truth. The truth is he's there for us, even through these trials and tribulations. And um, that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that these are promises that we can be sure of. And so when I picture Mordecai daily walking back, daily keeping his eye on Esther, that's a picture, you know, I just like to see God is daily concerned with what I am doing here as well. Goes on in verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go into the king, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, this is a time of preparation. Oil, myrrh, perfumes. Now, again, I think this is like a, a red flag for us that there's something deeper here. And uh, I'm going to explain that in a moment. But before I do, I might just kind of veer off course here a little bit. Six months of treatment with myrrh and perfume, 12 months of beauty treatments altogether. I can't help but wonder how ugly these Persian women were to need 12 months of uh, <laughs> beauty treatments. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, on a serious note though, what you're going to see is that, uh, I'm gonna go to the next slide to kind of show you an Exodus where it says, this myrrh and these oils, this perfume, I think to a Jewish reader, when they even see those words of myrrh and perfume, their, their mind is going to take them automatically to the temple, automatically to where they use that most often. And here's what it says in Exodus 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that's 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, uh, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel. And it goes on to make a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. And so it's pointing us here, I think, that what we saw in the temple is that when the priests were to meet with God, when they were going into the presence of God, that they had to be prepared, that there had to be this this fragrance going up. Now, in some cases, we have the incense, which are the prayers of the saints that go up. That's uh, Scripture is very clear about kind of pointing that out as well. But we also see that this is a, a picture of preparation. And that's what Esther is doing. She's preparing herself to meet the king. And the priests, before they would go into the presence of God, had to have these things ready as well. And so I think that that would be, a, like I said, to a Jew reading that, something that would kind of stick out in their minds. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.2 talks about this preparation. Meanwhile, we, 
grown, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, this body, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so this is all about being joined with God, our King that we are clothed in righteousness, righteousness that only Jesus can impart to us. But he's saying, this is what Christ has done. He is the one who has prepared us. You might even look at that Mordecai. Like I said, he's a picture of Jesus. It's Mordecai who has given Esther all of these instructions. It's Mordecai who told her to be quiet. It's Mordecai who prepares her to go into that. And now she's doing this perfuming and all of that in extra preparation. And that's what we do as well, that we are to be preparing ourselves for eternal life. I, th I think that too often we get so caught up in the things of this world that we are preparing, you know, for the next five years or the next 10 years. I love to talk with kids and say, what do you hope to be doing in 10 years from now? And, you know, it's always like, well, hopefully I've got a great job and a great house and a great car. You know, I say, well, what do you hope to be doing 25 years from now? You know, and, and then they're like, I hope I'm rolling in the dough, you know, and how about 50 years from now? Well, I, I hope I'm retired. You know, and then how about 150 years from now or 350 years from now or a thousand years from now or a million years from now? You see, we should be preparing for an eternity that is so much longer than this itty little bitty harsh portion of our life now that it seems that we invest all of our time preparing for. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We need to prepare for an eternity, prepare to be meeting our king going into the throne room of God. So that's what Esther is, is doing here, really ultimately being prepared to do that very thing. We even see here in Ephesians that there's a specific, a specific time of preparation and anointing going on, just like in Esther. It says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Just like you kind of have this special attendant that has been assigned to Esther, God has given a special attendant for us, his spirit. And it is that that is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And in essence, it was this servant that is guaranteeing Esther's acceptance by the king. Just like it is the spirit that is a guarantee of our inheritance. Moving on to verse 13, it says, And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there. In the morning, returned to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So note that there are two specific conditions that are listed to enter into the king's presence. One, pleasing the king, and two, to be called, called by name. 
okay? Very specific conditions. Now, look what it says uh, if we kind of go back again to that parable of the talents here in Matthew chapter 22. It says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And it says, the king was pleased. The same conditions Esther had to meet the king, we have as well. This is what this parable is saying, that God has entrusted us with these talents, that he's given us his spirit. He's given us all these gifts, and he expects us to invest them in the kingdom of God, not bury them, not hide them, but we are supposed to be investing them. And what that does is it pleases the king. Isaiah 43, 1, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by our name. You are mine. And so here again, we see that God has considered Israel. God has considered his, his children special, and he calls us by name. And part of that name, notice I've called you by our name. I think that's a picture of the Trinity and whatnot. And, and I find it very fascinating that we have, have taken God's name, that we are called Christians. And right in there, you have Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach, that we, we bear that name. And that as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, we, we represent that name and we need to represent it well. So... Moving on here in verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Again, this special person, like that spirit, that we should do nothing, just like Jesus says, I do nothing except for what the Father tells me to do. He did nothing of his own will. We too have a spirit to guide us through our life. And we are to look to that spirit. We are look to the word of God and let that word be what guides us and directs us through, uh, through our life and through our days. It goes on. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. When we walk in the spirit, that's exactly what's going to happen. She was taken to the king King Ahasuerus there in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, uh, I don't know that seventh year could be a very significant thing as well, because it seems, you know, the Jews and Martin Luther and many other uh, early church fathers all believed that there would be 6,000 years of history and then that seventh uh, Sabbath rest where we are going to be taken to be with God. But Notice here as well, Esther won the favor of the king, everyone who saw her. That word favor is a very uh, important word because it's literally hen in Hebrew. It's literally grace. Er Esther had grace with the king. And that is the only thing that allows her to come into the throne room of the king is grace. It is no different with us. Look what it says here in verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor, that word hen again, and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
okay, we get to enter the presence of God, the, the, our heavenly realm, because of God's grace only. It is by grace that we have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And this is how Esther, a picture of the church, a picture of Israel, this is how they or she, the, the church, all of us, get to the throne room. And so a very clear picture of that as well. Now we know that the same word is used many times for Noah. Noah found grace with God or favor with God, shen with God. Um, we can look here in Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Okay, like I said, Noah, it's in uh, Genesis 7-1, it says that he found grace. So all of this is all pointing to that same uh, picture that um, it is not our works, not our righteousness, but because of grace, we are able to um, obey God, and it's there that that's what pleases him as well. In verse 18, it goes on and it says this, the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So this celebration is all to honor Esther. It, it, it says a great banquet, Esther's banquet. Okay, this is a picture of the, I believe, the wedding banquet of the Lamb because we read about that in Revelation chapter 19 and this great wedding banquet. But what it's about, if you look there, we see it's, it's the time to reward the saints. It's a time where the saints are lifted up. It's a time that God is going to be proud of his bride. This is what we saw that the king was trying to do with Vashti is present Vashti because he was proud of her beauty and proud of that. And this is what is happening here. Vashti did not uh, make the cut. She did not receive grace or favor. Verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So a few things that we see here is that Esther was very wise. She was wise in that she received counsel. She not just heard it, but lived it out. Her nature was a submissive nature to obey her uncle. Proverbs 1.5 says, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. Ultimately, I might say this, that you're destined for greatness when you heed correction, when you listen to others, when you aren't uh, bullheaded and, and narrow-minded to not listen to the word of God. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. And so just as Mordecai had told her to do, just again, Jesus is a picture, Mordecai is a picture of Jesus that he has instructed us, he's told us what to do. And when we do that, when we practice the wisdom of obeying God's word, there is greatness 
that lies ahead for us. There are blessings, you might say, in that. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, who two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, we don't know what it was that made them angry. Some have suggested that possibly uh, that they were very close to Vashti and that they were kind of upset that Vashti was, was kind of kicked out of the kingdom. But we, we just don't know. But whatever it was, it says Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So basically there's a plot against the king uh, and it's Mordecai who is going to foil that plot. Remember the king is a picture of God. There are these people who are against God, ungodly people. And it's Jesus that is going to foil those who go against the kingdom of God, you might say. Mordecai was, it seems, put in that right place at the right time for the purpose of redeeming uh, Esther, you might say. Just as Jesus came at the proper time, at the right period of history, at the right place to redeem Israel, that uh, it seems, like I said, he's been watching uh, Esther all the time. And he hears this, and so he's concerned about her well-being. And I think so many times the hand of God even has us in a certain place for a reason. And many times we don't want to be in that place. We don't want to go through a trial or a tribulation or whatever the case might be. And we need to realize that God doesn't leave us. God hasn't left us, left us alone. And this isn't an accident that we're going through some of these trials and tribulations. That if we're patient and we just keep our eyes fixed on him, we're going to see that there may be a purpose for that. I believe there always is a purpose for the things that we go through. And Mordecai here clearly has a purpose in hearing this. Well, in verse, I'm, I'm going to bust into chapter three here a little bit. Maybe we've got a few extra minutes so I can maybe gain a little bit. Um, so let's do chapter three, just a few verses here. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. To me, this is where it starts to get good in chapter three. We've really kind of laid a good foundation, and from here out, the story really starts to, uh, I think, get uh, grabbing the attention more. We see there's a lot of family history that has gone on here. It's not an accident that it's mentioning that Haman is an Agagite, because uh, if you recall, there was a king, Agag, of the Amalekites, that Saul never killed, and Samuel has to come in and ends up killing him in its place, but Saul is in trouble for not doing this, because God said he was to be wiped out. Well, Haman is a direct descendant 
of this line of Agag. Now, it's also very significant that Saul, who did not kill Agag, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, guess what tribe Mordecai is from? From the tribe of Benjamin, which means Esther is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so here we see almost, you might say, a second chance for God's command to be fulfilled, that the Agagites were to be wiped out at the hand of Benjamin. Now, the Amalekites, we, the first time we meet them is when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, and the Israelites fight with the Amalekites so that Moses is told that, you know, he, he goes up on a mountain and he has to have his hands propped up. And as long as their hands are up, he's winning the battle. But as soon as the hands go down, they start losing the battle. And so some people hold his hands up. And again, I see Moses as a Christ figure. Again, this is a picture of the cross, that as their eyes are fixed on the cross, the battle uh, is being won. But anyway, um, what we see is that there is a family history that's going on here. In Exodus 17, verse 14, look what it says would happen with this uh, Amalek, Amalekite uh, family. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. In other words, that these Amalekites were trying to wipe out Israel. And God said, no, I'm going to be what's going to wipe out the Amalekites. It says, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So here we are hundreds of years before Esther and it's foretold that there would be a war against God and the Amalekites. And in Esther, we're seeing a fi final fulfillment of this battle going on. And so God has a purpose, uh, I think, in redeeming Esther, the, the, his church, his bride. And part of that purpose is also to fulfill his promise in wiping out the Amalekites. So, uh, the, the fact that it's an Amagite, Agagite is very important. Now, we've seen God, King Ahasuerus. We see Jesus, Mordecai. We see Esther, the bride. Who is this uh, Haman going to be this Agagite? After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, and here's the part I want to highlight, elevating him and giving him a seat of higher honor than that all of other nobles. This is important because we see that he is elevated higher than any other uh, noble in the kingdom. That's very significant when we see that Haman is a picture of the devil or Satan. And I think that the Amalekites are a picture of that, which is why God says that the Lord is going to be at war with him forever. And that the Lord would wipe him out. 
because look what we see when it talks about the devil, that he too has a seat. He was seated above the honor of all other nobles, or you might say all other angels in heaven. It says, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, all these stones. It says, your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. And so here we're seeing that Satan is as close as you can get to the king, just as Haman is as close as you can get to the king. He, has, he was set in a place of honor, elevated above all others and closer to God than any others. He was a guardian cherub. And when you think of a cherub, you might think of the, the, the ark of God. The ark was the throne of God and the cherub were right on top of that, protecting it always in the presence of God. And so Satan was in the presence of God all the time. And this is a picture of what we see with Haman as well. It goes on to say in verse 16 of Ezekiel 28, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Now, Again, spoiler alert, if you've ever looked at, at the book of Esther, you can tell this is exactly what's going to happen with Haman. It's on account of his beauty, his pride. He is going to be puffed up, and he's upset that Haman isn't going to bow down and worship him, all of these things. And it says, so I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you. What's going to happen to Haman? He's going to be hung on the gallows. He is going to be made a spectacle. He says, by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuary. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. Just like with Haman, what's going to happen? It's the very gallows that he himself built to destroy Israel. Those gallows are what he will be hung on to be made a spectacle of. That the fire that his own fire, you might say, is going to consume him. It says, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. I just think as we really see this whole picture of Haman, you can't get a more perfect uh, picture of the devil than what Haman is going to be here. In verse 2, it goes on, the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. So here we see Mordecai would not kneel down. Now, this is going to be important. Uh, there's reasons that Mordecai is not going to bow down. 
One of them being, he had told them he was a Jew. That really tells us why he wouldn't bow down. Okay, they say Mordecai's behavior, you know, would be tolerated for he had told them he's a Jew. The implication is he's a Jew. Jews don't bow down and worship anything but God. It was the expectation of a Jew, an expectation that only God was to be worshiped. And this is why Mordecai is not doing this. And it says day after day, they spoke to him. Day after day, he was being pressured to, you might say, take the mark to take the mark of the beast, to compromise, to bow down and give the beast Satan worship. Okay, The Jews had the law of God, and it said, you shall worship the Lord your God only. Exodus 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God. You shall not make any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so... Here we see he's not going to break the commandments of God. He will only do what his father told him to do, as Christ did. In Acts chapter 12, we see Herod accepted worship from the people, and it says that he fell down and died. The worms ate him up. And uh, it's interesting, Josephus talks about that. And uh, the scriptures don't say this, but Josephus says that he realized when he was taking all of this praise, he says, now I, a man, must, I, a mortal, must prove that I am immortal. And he died in, in just a very, very painful death as worms ate him from the inside out. And um, uh, only God is to be worshiped. And that is the picture that we're seeing here. And this is a picture that Mordecai shows. This is a picture that even Jesus says that he alone is worthy of worship. And a Jew or one who follows God cannot worship anyone else, no matter what, even if there's day-to-day -day pressure. And there might be a time coming when we're going to be pressured to, to give someone else worship. And this is the kind of resolve that we need to have as well. Verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Well, again, this is just so prophetic of what we're seeing here. Um, Haman is enraged when Mordecai will not worship him. Now, it's not enough then for Haman just to go after Mordecai, go after God. He's got to go after all that follow God. Well, that's exactly what Scripture says. In Revelation 12, 17, the dragon, what Haman is a picture of, I believe, then the dragon was enraged at the woman. What's the woman? The woman, I believe, here in Revelation 12 is a picture of Israel, okay? And basically the church, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold to the testimony about Jesus. In other words, he's going to go after Esther. He's going to go after everybody who obeys God. And he's enraged, just as Haman is. And so, again, I don't see a more perfect prophetic picture uh, here than what 
we can see in Esther of what's happening. Matthew 4.8 continues and says this, the devil took him to a very high mountain, speaking of taking Jesus there, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. This is what the devil wants. The devil wants worship. And I got news for you guys. You are all worshiping, worshiping someone. It's either the devil or God. There's no in between. If you're not worshiping God, you worship the devil. You don't have to be a satanic worshiper and doing all these, you know, seances and whatnot. If you're not obeying God, you're disobeying God. If you're disobeying God, you're giving the devil worship. And if you don't, that's what makes him mad. I think we've all seen people who, when they first become a Christian, it's almost like clockwork. You can say, this person is going to go under some heavy attacks because the devil wants to get at them. Anyway, he says, if you, will not, or if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So really, what we see Jesus doing is exactly what Mordecai did. Why didn't Jesus worship him? Because the word, God's word, said no, worship God only. Why doesn't Mordecai worship? Because the law, God's word, said don't worship any, anyone but God. Now, Luke adds a little tidbit here that says, Satan says, after all of this, I will give you, for they have been given to me. Uh, I think that's kind of an important part because um, uh, a lot of people think that right now God has, the whole world is his kingdom. That's not what scripture says. The scripture says right now, the prince of this world stands condemned. We see that Adam and Adam was given complete dominion over the world. And when he sinned, he lost that dominion and it was given to Satan. Jesus doesn't have all those kingdoms yet. This wasn't an empty offer that the devil was giving him. We don't see until the book of Revelation at the seventh trumpet, he says, now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And so just kind of a very, I think, important note to, to realize there. But anyway, Haman, a picture of the devil, is enraged. He wants to go after all of God's children, Mordecai's offspring, because he wants worship. Esther 3, 7, you might have to kind of maybe close up after this. I've got, well, maybe we might make it if you take five minutes here. Esther 3, 7 says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month of the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Again. They're dispersed, just like Jesus said, the, the, the tribes of Israel had been dispersed. And he says, their customs are different from those of all the other people. They don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Okay, he's saying the laws, their laws are different. Okay, their laws are special. Just as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse five, it, it says this, 
See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. You will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? Whenever, okay, uh, whenever we pray to him, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? You see, these laws are indeed different. And what was the purpose of those laws? In part, so that the nations would see them and go, wow, what a special people. We look sometimes at these laws as, well, I don't want to obey God because it might make me look a little bit different than the rest of the world. Yeah, that's the point. Our obedience, we aren't supposed to look like the world. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be the ones so that they look at you and go, wow, what does he have? There's something unique about him. He doesn't go out and party like everybody else. He doesn't have all these dirty jokes like everybody else. He doesn't have those creative words like everybody else. And then when they know, when, you know, the, the, the troubles find them, they know where to go. Because part of the reasons of those laws was to be a message to the other nations. And he says, I have taught you these decrees and laws. And these are the very things that give you wisdom. They give you understanding. This is what God's law does. It doesn't get you to heaven, but it gives you wisdom. It gives you understanding as you study it, as you obey it. And it's, it's a, a way of preaching truth to others without even saying a word at times. And it lets others know that you are a great nation set apart, righteous, and loved by God. Verse 9, if, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. So this is an authority. The signet ring is authority. And who does he give it to? The king gives it to the devil son of Habadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Now, you might look at this and think, now, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense that God would give the devil, in our picture that we're, we're painting here, the authority to go after the people. Yet, if you start thinking biblically, isn't this exactly what Scripture says? Look at this in Revelation chapter 13, starting at verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, the devil. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, and it goes on to describe it. Down here in verse 7, though, it says, This beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. You see, we see prophetically that the devil is given authority. Well, who gives the devil authority? Nobody can give it to him except God. 
just like we see the king giving Haman the authority, God is going to give the devil authority to go after the people. Now you might say, well, why? Why would he do that? Well, there are reasons, okay? One of those reasons being sometimes God wants to give that uh, authority to the devil because what it means is it is going to be the end of the devil. It means it's going to be the demise of Haman. And so it's not that God is out of control. It's part of his plan all along. It says here in verse 12, then on the 13th day of the month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. I think that this is a picture of the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, God's going to give authority. Revelation and many Old Testament verses talk about this very thing, that God is going to give authority to the devil to go out and do it. And it says it, it, he wrote it out in a script. It's been written down. It has the authority. He goes after young, old women. It doesn't make any difference the age, just like we see in Revelation. Okay, it draws us to what the prophets were talking about in the last days. Okay, um, that this is going to happen, the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, it says here in verse 14, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued on the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Okay. Again, they were bewildered, just like we might be reading in this and go, why would God allow this? They were bewildered because it didn't make any sense. They hadn't committed any crime. They, didn't, they hadn't done anything wrong, but yet here they are doomed to die. Okay, this is far too familiar, by the way, for the Jews. If you study Jewish history, the pogroms, the blood libels, and all of this kind of thing. Uh, if you study history, they were blamed for the Black Plague and all kinds of things. And likewise, in the end times, it's not going to make sense either. Bottom line, it's interesting that we can even see with this coronavirus, uh, one Harvard professor is even blaming Christians for all the trials because you see Christians don't really want to isolate themselves because Christians don't fear, the, uh, fear death. So they don't take this seriously. Okay? It doesn't make any sense, but yet this is the kind of thing that we're going to see in end times. It, it might cause us to be bewildered, but again, look what the prophets say. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when you, your possession will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Okay, here we see a prophecy that Jerusalem is going to be divided. Okay, in the news, we see this all the time, that Jerusalem, is that's what the UN wants to do. Zechariah has predicted this. And interestingly, too, by the way, Iran is one of the main threats for Israel today. And Iran is Persia, the very thing that we're reading about here. But um, 
there's going to be a time when Jerusalem is going to be ransacked. Joel says this, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will bring them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people, traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. So why does God gather the nations? Why did God give the devil the authority? Right here is your answer, to destroy those nations. Why does God allow Haman to go against Mordecai? To destroy him. And so when we're going through trials and when we see things what seem to be falling apart, remember the story of Esther. God's not out of control. He knows what he's doing. And just like the scriptures foretell, we win. And there may be some tough times ahead. We just have to wait for God to move. And there's nothing to fear when our eyes are fixed on him and we trust his promises. So anyway, I've kind of gone through some of that fast, but I, I thought I'd try and maybe get through uh, to finish since I started. I did go a little long. Hopefully that's okay, but at least we finished that chapter this way. So.